Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Airway First, a podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca Boschma. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Stephen Hall. Dr. Hall is an integrated physician, teacher, speaker, and author of the book, The Seven Tools of Healing. His message is about finding and changing the patterns that are creating painful feelings, harmful behaviors, dysfunctional relationships, and physical diseases within all of us. Dr. Hall began his medical career in 1985 as a residency-trained and board-certified family practitioner. His practice has been shaped by his own personal journey to answer two questions. What is healing? And how can I best help you with yours? We're also proud and honored to call Dr. Hall one of the advisory board members for the Children's Airway First Foundation. And now let's jump into my interview with Dr. Stephen Hall. All right. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, very happy to be here. Great. Thank you so much. So I'd like to start with, um, because I'd like to go through your full journey of becoming a doctor and to kind of where you are now with your practice. One of the things that you have said should also view you as a whole fully integrated multidimensional being and make good use of the best concepts and treatments from all valid medical traditions. The reason out of everything that I've read of yours so far that that really struck me is um, along with a lot of people that listen to this podcast, I have a chronic illness that no one seems to be able to fix. Mm. And I understand when people come in and they look at your symptoms and that's how they want to just, let's just fix this thing right here. You were one of the first doctors that I've ever heard actually say, no, let's it's holistic. It's really holistic. Let's tackle it from a different perspective. So talk to me a little bit about how you came to that way of thinking and, and working in your practice. I remember uh, starting to want to be a doctor when I was in sixth grade. Oh, wow. And, um, and then it turns out when I got into junior high, I started taking uh, science classes that I uh, enjoyed it. I really liked science and the way of thinking. And um, so as an undergraduate, I really thought it was important to teach myself how to problem solve mm-hmm. and, and how to really think. And, uh, so, you know, I really liked, uh, engineering it turns out because engineering basically is problem solving. Sure. And so I have an undergraduate degree in material science and engineering. And back then we were working on like the Jarvik heart and artificial blood vessels, artificial tendons. And mm-hmm. I was kind of working on how to make these things more biocompatible. That was my undergraduate research. Wow. And, um, I was also able to double major in chemistry at the time because so many of the classes overlapped Mm -hmm. and and then I have a minor in physics. So pretty science oriented. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, um, but luckily I, my summer job was, uh, I was a whitewater river guide on the green and the Colorado rivers. Mm -hmm. And so I spent the summers basically taking people down through these incredibly beautiful canyons and, sitting around the campfire at night talking with them and we got into philosophy and and i really got started getting interested in in humans and how they worked (laughs) which i think is helpful if you're going to be a doctor right right and um (laughs) but i was also not just interested in the in the like the content of science i was very interested in the process of science 
Right. You know, how do we actually know that what we think we know is true? Mm, okay. And it turns out that's a difficult question to answer. And, right. and philosophers have been working on that for over 300 years. Um, so one of the important parts of science, a very important aspect of science is the data. And, and the data is pretty much primary. And then the models are basically designed to try to explain the data. Okay. And so one of the most unscientific things a scientist can do is discard data just because it doesn't fit the model, mm. the, current, the current model. Okay. So once I realized that, hey, you know, everything in your life exerts some kind of influence on your health, mm -hmm. right? Everything. Right. Which and, is something else that you've said, which was amazing, which was try to think of one thing in your life that has absolutely no influence upon your health. Yeah, good luck. And I'll tell you, yeah, when I read your book, I'm not kidding you. I paused. I thought I can do this. Yeah, I still haven't come up with an answer yet. Right. I just, I mean, even the boulder sitting out in the field is leaching minerals into the soil that's feeding the plants, that's making the oxygen uh -huh. that you're breathing. I mean, it's we're all. Connected. all yeah, we're all interconnected mm -hmm. on this planet. Absolutely. And, and so it just made sense to me that we would have a system of medicine that can take your entire life into account. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at the medical model that I was being taught in medical school and realized this doesn't account for quite a lot of human experience, <laughs> you know, it, it, the medical model basically sees you as a skin bag of biochemical reactions. Mm-hmm. And the assumption is if we just knew what those biochemical reactions were, then we could pour in other chemicals and you could be the person you wanted to you be. You could control them. Yep. Mm -hmm. You can control it. Well, right there, that violates the Heisenberg uncertainty principle because you can never know the initial conditions exactly. Right. And right. it's astonishing how like, you know, you know, the quantum worldview and Eastern traditional worldviews are alike in so many points mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's been a big curiosity over the years like how how could this quantum explanation that only work you know it's only really needed on very very small scales like atoms and electrons and things um but yet it applies to us as humans and we're big you know, so right but um so anyway uh i i was a, i was wanted to be a family practitioner because mm -hmm. I kind of like being a jack of all trades. Okay. And Makes I sense. like being able to see a person as a whole person and, and be able to take their whole life into account. So, mm -hmm. so I was, you know, I didn't think all these things at once, obviously this is an evolution, yeah. right. but I remember a day when I was a third year resident. So I was in my seventh year of medical training. And I just finished my afternoon in the clinic and I was walking back to the residence room to dictate my notes. And I was just thinking about the patients I'd seen that afternoon and, and asked myself the question, well, what prompted them to actually, you know, pick up the phone, make an appointment and come in? What, mm -hmm. what are they really looking for? And I thought about, you know, the person with hypertension and the person with diabetes and, and, um, and then I thought, well, what if they're really looking for healing? And, I stopped in my tracks because here I was in my seventh year of medical training and I didn't know what healing was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, well, I know I, that that's still, 
you know? It boggles me, yeah. Yeah, and because for one thing, medicine likes to be a scientific endeavor, right? Mm -hmm. And in, in science, we always define our terms so we have a precise language so that we all know what we're talking about when we talk right. to each other. Which makes so how, sense. Yeah, so mm -hmm. how could there be this multi-billion dollar science-based healthcare industry with no concept of health? No true definition, right? No true definition. So I thought, mm -hmm. well, I got to remediate, remediate that problem. So I started searching for a definition of health or healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And seven years later, I started to get an appreciation for why <laughs> nobody did. Well, nobody's had one, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, but what I noticed in that time was that even though I didn't have a precise definition, I, and I'd gone through several by that time, there were mm -hmm. uh, like one... There, there was back in that day, there's an organization called the American Holistic Medical Association. And their definition of healing was balance and harmony with the cosmos. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good, but how do you do that in the exam room? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of <laughs> like, okay, Mrs. Smith, today we're going to put you in balance and harmony with the cosmos. Mm -hmm. But what I realized later. About... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what I realized later is, no, that's actually the effect of healing. That's not what healing is. Mm -hmm. That's a result of healing that you come into that balance. Right. 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 So, and as, and as we're going, I want to make sure people know that, um, cause we're getting to the point that I can already tell, I'm going to start referencing this, your, this is your book. I'll have it on the website, um, as well as in the notes from our podcast, the seven tools of healing, um, because I know we're going to be referencing this quite a bit as we go. And I want people to be able to. Oh, what did they say? Where did they say? Let me go pull that in. Yeah. So very quickly, I know we need to keep going is um, yeah. that even though I didn't have a definition of healing, I could kind of recognize it when one of my patients experienced when you it. saw it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I asked myself the question, okay, so by that time I knew healing was more than just how your physical body functioned. Mm -hmm. Obviously you needed mental health too, and you needed healthy relationships and all, all kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. Healthy sleep, that, that all kinds of things. So I got to thinking, well, so if, if somebody has symptoms, that's a clue that they need healing. Mm -hmm. And the resolution of the symptoms is a clue. The healing has happened. It's not the actual healing itself. So the, the symptoms mm -hmm. a clue. And when the symptom goes away, that's a clue that it has happened. So I started looking at my patient, well, what else happened to them then besides the resolution of their symptoms? Mm -hmm. And what I saw was that they had learned something. And what they had learned almost inevitably had deepened their understanding of themselves. It had given them a deeper perspective of who they were, and it, it helped them be more in their power and the, the, along those lines, right? Mm -hmm. And so I asked myself the question, well, what if that learning about who they are is the actual healing and again that might just be a side effect of the healing but what that did was that got me focusing on well i want to when i'm treating a person i want the net result to be that they also deepen their understanding of themselves not just have the symptom go away right and so okay. i started looking for therapies that both you know helped a person find the imbalance that's being expressed as a symptom and correcting the imbalance, but at the same time learning about themselves. So that's, that's basically what I've been trying to do for the last 
37, 38 years now at this point. And would it be wrong to, to classify it as, and again, this is, you know, my takeaway having read this, it's you're treating the person. Right. It's what you do, not the, some, you're actually treating the person. Yeah. I mean, we often, I mean, medicine has a lot of really powerful tools mm-hmm. that they're very handy. And so we do use them to, to treat symptoms when necessary, but I don't generally just stop there. I'll say, okay, you have, you know, your blood pressure is high. We can give you medicine to lower your blood pressure, but your high blood pressure is not the cause of your high blood pressure. Right. Let's dig deeper and figure out what's deeper. causing it. Mm-hmm. Your high blood sugar is not the cause of your high blood sugar or wh- whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So your, your arthritis isn't the cause, you know? So, so basically almost anything that somebody comes in with, there's, there's something causing it. Mm-hmm. And, and in my mind, so like, for, for example, a chronic disease is basically chronic because it resists our attempts to treat it and make it go away. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and if you, you know, the NIH, the National Institute of Health does these surveys every once in a while and the percentage of Americans living with chronic disease is just going up and up and up. Yes. Yeah. And it's staggering. It's like, I think it was 54% last mm-hmm. study I saw. And, and half of those folks are living with more than one chronic disease at a time. Right. So this progression is happening on conventional medicine's watch. Mm-hmm. So it turns out conventional medicine is great if you need your appendix out or something. Right. Know? Right. But it's not very good at dealing with these chronic diseases. And so the thing that's helped more of my patients more than anything I've learned in medical school is this ability to get help them listen to, okay, what is my body trying to say by generating this constellation of symptoms? Mm-hmm. And can I really find the real imbalance and and get that imbalance aligned, get it corrected? Get back in check. And and over the years, I kept trying to you know peeling down through the layers, thinking, oh, this is the root, this is the root. And every time I would think this is the root, then I'd find no, there's something behind that too. And then the person would come in with something else, and we'd find that something behind that too. And so. Luckily, I've had a pretty stable practice. I've been able to follow. I've got some pa- patients I've been seeing for over 20 years. And so I've really been able to see their life evolve. Right. And, you know, a lot of doctors, I think, can't see these patterns because they don't see the same person very often. A lot, you know, because doctors move around, people's insurance change, they have to change doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, or if and- you're chronic, you just get tired. You get tired of going and go somewhere else. Yeah. You just and get tired in general. Yeah. So the, um, but uh, being able to see these, you know, follow these people for long-term and has helped me help me really keep peeling back through the layers until we got to the roots. And I know this might sound a little outrageous, but the root of almost everything I've, in my opinion now, after watching all this is actually how consciousness is getting expressed really so what do you mean about that well i think that there's a i mean there's a consciousness behind all of creation Mm -hmm. okay and you might call that god you might call it purusha or you know right wankantanka i mean what there's lots of names for it right right so so you might and and everything in physical 
in the physical manifestation, like this clip here, or this microphone, mm -hmm. or this computer, they're all expressing aspects of that consciousness, mm -hmm. including your disease processes. And so there's basically, I mean, the, the consciousness that we have access to is essentially unlimited. But how many people do you know are living an infinite life? Right, right. Right. And right. so something's limiting our access to that consciousness and something's determining what aspects of that consciousness kind of come through and become our life. And so I call those determinants of conscious expression. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of them, like your genetics are determinant of consciousness expression, right? Sure, sure. And, and but the, the, the determinants that we have the most say over that we can actually maybe control are your beliefs. Mm -hmm. so your beliefs uh basically determine what becomes your life and that's why goethe said man is as he believes as he believes so he is right 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 and henry ford said if you think you can you can if you think you can't you're right you're right mm -hmm. exactly <laughs> so there's all these quotes. sayings <laughs> yeah all these quotes and sayings about how important beliefs are right mm -hmm. and so i would say I mean, not always, but majority of the limiting beliefs that are holding people back in their lives and creating these imbalances are generally uh, belief imbalances, where they're holding some kind of belief that says they're smaller than they really are. Right, right. And the symptom is... Oh, go no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, think about how many of us go through our everyday lives like that. Oh, exactly. And, and you just don't think about it. It just, it's, it's somewhere along the lines you decided you couldn't do something or you weren't as good as somebody for that, or you could only go this far and it stuck. Yeah. Yeah. And studies have shown that most of the major beliefs that make up our worldview are in place in our psyche by the time we're seven years old. Mm. And so how many of those beliefs are we going to consciously know about? Right. Right. You just carry them with you. Yeah. And so they're back here. And mm -hmm. unconscious sort of and unconscious working away and, and all we see are the results feeding out, which we can, we interpret as reality. Right. And so this, the practice, the way that you come at things, you call it an it's integral medicine methodologies. Right. Right. Um, and one of the things that I know that you practice is uh, it's cranial sacred, but you, it's actually mentioned at some point in the book is cranial osteopathy. Am I slaughtering that? No, no. Okay, <laughs> I can't um, sure I said it correctly. So yeah. exactly what is this and what is cranial sacral work and how does this, you know, factor well, in? So I, I did my residency in Saginaw, Michigan. Mm -hmm. Hey. So I was just up the just state a little bit Detroit. up. Yep. Yeah, yep. Just right, right there. Here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Exactly. And, um, and it turns out that they're down in uh, Flint, Mm -hmm. uh, or Lance, sorry, East Lansing, there's a, uh, a medical school where uh, osteopathy, osteopathy and MD share a medical school. Okay. And they even take classes together the first two years of their training. And so they offer a 40 hour basic manual medicine course twice a year, I think. And so I use some of my um, conference time in my residency to just go down there and take their course in basic manual medicine. Okay. And that taught me a whole different way to think about the body. And, and I like working with my hands. So mm -hmm. I came back to residency and 
um, and started applying the, the uh, osteopathic manipulations and getting really good results. And, but I just had a very basic, you know, rudimentary understanding of it, but I was able to diagnose things that I couldn't treat. So I went to the residency director and explained the situation said, Oh, I took this class. Um, and now I can diagnose these things, but I can't treat them. Is it okay with you? If I refer clinic patients to chiropractors, mm-hmm. and this was back in the, in the seventies, right? Late seventies, right. early eighties. And, and he said, well, you know, you're liable for your referrals. So if you get to know them and trust them, I'll back you up on that. He, he was a great nice. program. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. No kidding. Dr. Kelly. Yeah. Very open-minded. And so I started calling, get out the phone book. This was before the internet <laughs> and <laughs> got out the phone book and started calling chiropractors and say, Hey, can I meet you for lunch? And you just hear their jaw hit the ground on the other side of the phone. Right. <laughs> But that was my first foray out of, you know, conventional medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I found was a whole group of practitioners who were highly trained and, mm-hmm. and caring about their client, their patients and, and knew it, you know, most of them knew what they were doing. And, and so I started referring people and, uh, and seeing how it worked for them and when it didn't work and when it did and just learning that way. So that sort of set the stage. Um, and then I did my only, I my first practice, I went to a small town in rural Maine and was the only doctor in a small town up there Mm. about two hours North of Portland. And again, I took some time to go down to Boston and I took a course in clinical hypnosis. Mm -hmm. And that taught me a whole different way of thinking about the mind. I bet. Wow. Because in residency, I was very interested in, in psychology too. So I, the residency actually had a psychologist on staff and most of the residents ignored her all the time. So I had had plenty of time to sit and chat <laughs> and with doctor, her and yeah. pick her brains. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was really interested in that. And um, so I didn't learn cranial work till later, like seven or eight years later. Actually, it was 91. I started studying the cranial work, which is a subspecialty of osteopathy. Okay. Um, and, but it, and it's very gentle. There's no popping or cracking. And uh, it turns out the body elaborates these three subtle rhythms and by you can palpate those rhythms with your hands and when you can feel where they're stuck or asymmetrical or out of balance and there's therapeutic techniques you learn to sort of encourage the um the uh, rhythms back into balance Mm -hmm. and and then that frees up the body's own innate healing capacity so between the the cranial work and then really doing well, sure what I well found, said. what I noticed was when I started doing cranial work on people, they would sort of automatically go into a hypnotic state. Oh, wow. So I didn't even have to do an induction or anything. And, wow. and so what I would do is I just ask people, okay, I'm listening to these rhythms while I'm working on you. I'm just asking you to listen to your body from your side. And, and then the way I learned to do hypnosis was very allopathic where we were just taught all these post-hypnotic suggestions to leave people with. And, and again, it's very symptom oriented. It didn't get to the root, but, um, but there's another form of hypnosis kind of called Ericksonian hypnosis, where you literally can go into the unconscious mind, like on a safari, or I think of like a fact finding mission, you know? Oh, wow. And, okay. and since the unconscious runs your body mm-hmm. by combining the body work uh, really 
allows a person to it kind of raises a curtain between the conscious and the unconscious and they can actually get really good information from their body and and basically understand the body language the body is using and so um over time of doing this and and i noticed that everybody i worked with had this deep inner wisdom that was running their body mm-hmm. so you don't have to think about your potassium levels or your sodium levels or right right and mm-hmm. your body your body just takes care of that stuff and um and so people that were able to connect with that could ask okay well what should i do to solve this problem in my life what will help me with my sleep what will help me with all these allergic reactions i'm getting now or what would help me with whatever problem that my headaches or whatever you know mm-hmm. and and then if they got really still and could listen and answer they would, would get the answer yeah wow yeah and over time i noticed that um there was a pattern to how this inner wisdom helped people and that's what the seven tools are yeah it's basically that that pattern and and i had a whole string of patients that really couldn't listen to their inner they couldn't connect with that inner knower part and and so i taught them the seven tools and they went home and practiced them and after a few months of practicing them they were then better able to connect with that inner knowing do you think uh, from your experience pretty much everybody can get there even though it takes a little time yep i think it's possible um i do believe there are certain worldviews that block it yeah. and as long as you're holding on to those worldviews it's going to be challenging and maybe blocked i, I mean for example i've I've never seen anybody heal and remain a victim at the same time. Hmm. So yeah. a victim mentality is a very, it's a, it's a hard block. Right. right. And, and what I say is, you know, being victimized is a universal human experience. Mm-hmm. We've all had things happen to us that we, sure. wish, right? right. But that, but being a victim is a way of seeing yourself. Okay. You know, and that's what holds you back. So, and it, it, it doesn't say anything about all that you've experienced. That can be worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, but the conclusion that you're powerless, you're a victim, then that's what you're That's gonna, the one that impacts your body that you're carrying with you. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that will become your determinant of conscious expression. And so you'll, you'll have experiences where you're powerless. <laughs> Bad things happen, you know? Wow. So, so and, and this it's not that me, simple, obviously, but that's just obviously, an example. Yeah. yeah, obviously, right? So, and to me, this this is so fascinating. And I just have a myriad of questions, but I, I want to tie this a little bit into newborns, if we if we could, um, because one of the things that we really advocate for with Children's Airway First is if we can get to these kids before the age of six, you really could have this dramatic impact on their airway, which leads to their sleep quality and their health quality and all these things, you know, throughout their life. And from my understanding, you know, your cranial work is one of the things that, you know, could be done to help some of these kids. Yeah. So a couple of examples. Um, so one of the things we see if, if, a if a baby's, um, tongue tied, mm-hmm. Um, cause babies suck while, when they're inside, you, they see it on ultrasound, but kids are sucking. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they're tongue tied, then they're sucking in an abnormal way. And they literally train their whole 
uh, mouth and throat muscles to work in this abnormal way. Mm -hmm. And so even after you release the tongue tie, they may still not know how to tongue thrust or, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so what we found is if they have some cranial work right after the release, it often, again, frees up that natural balancing mechanism and mm. um, the babies start nursing a lot better. Wow. And, and uh, so, so I really like to, to see babies. I mean, it might be good to you know, even prep babies before, but I, I personally think the sooner you can do the release in a baby, the better not wait till they're, you know, a month old or two or three months old or whatever. Um, and then do one or two cranial visits to get them in, get their whole <clears throat> oral pharyngeal area in balance mm -hmm. often um, helps them a lot. And can this work so. for older children as well? If, you know, if you've got a child that's four or five and is a mouth breather or is having sleep issues or how would you approach something like that? Yeah. If, um, Yes. By that time, they've already probably, you know, changed the growth of their mandible and changed their maxilla and all that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And so, um, but what we found is that <clears throat> if um, children are going through orthodontry, for example, to, to expand the palate or mm -hmm. to, um, to move thing, move teeth around and stuff that the cranial work helps orthodontry work a lot better. Really? Yeah. And like I had a patient, uh, as a teenager, one of her, um, uh, incisors came in behind the tooth that was supposed to be in front of. Okay. And so they were doing this treatment to literally move the tooth out and around and drop it back into place. And the orthodontist said, well, this is going to take 16 months to get this done. And she was in a lot of pain every time she went and had her braces adjusted. And so the mom set up the appointments to have her come in to see me the next day afterwards. And after treatment, um, and releasing tension patterns in the mouth and gums and alveolar bone and everything. Um, she wouldn't have any more pain that month. And wow. she got through the treatment in, in 10 months. Wow. Instead of 16 months. Well, and do you and, think part of that is you know, her body wasn't in pain? And, and so she was processing things different. Maybe is it possible that she was more open to the adjustments? Well, and releasing the strain patterns each time allows things to just move better. And I also think it removes any forces that want to make the tooth go back to where it started from. Hmm. So nowadays they're asking people to wear their retainers their whole life. Right. And, and I think if they were to get cranial work, as they went through that, the orthodontry, there wouldn't be any reason why their mouth would go back to where it the started. resistance from their body would go away. Exactly. I mean, wow. I don't think there's any studies to prove that. That's just a theory that I have. A theory, right. Yeah. You're listening to Airway First with today's guest, Dr. Stephen Hall. You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to ensure that every child has access to screening, evaluation, and treatment of all children's airway disorders before the age of six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. You can also find a ton of great resources for parents on our website, including videos, blogs, recommended books, comprehensive medical research, and other podcasts. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. 
If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. Now, back to our podcast. But, um, but I've had a lot of patients, uh, I could tell you lots of stories, but where the, um, the cranial work really dovetailed nicely with orthodontry and they get better outcomes more quickly and with less pain. That's amazing. Now, what about with sleep? Have you found does cranial work assist people, especially kids, but anyone with sleep issues as well? Or would you approach, how would you approach that? Would you approach that completely different? Well, um, what we can do with cranial work is just get your system into balance and then sort of step back and see what happens. Okay. And so it's different for each person. So, but you have a little bone right above your voice box called your hyoid bone. Yeah. And that hyoid doesn't touch any other bones. Okay. It's, it's suspended in space by the force of three different muscle groups. Mm-hmm. So I think of it like where the three legs of a Y come together. Okay. That's where the hyoid sits. And right. so the bottom leg are these um, uh, muscles that go from the hyoid down to your sternum and, and or well, it's actually the manubrium there. And then your um, clavicle and stuff. And then the one leg of the Y are the muscles that make the floor of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at a, a skull, that's all open space there, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And then, so there's this floor of muscle and then your tongue sits on that muscle. And then the back part of the Y are the muscles that go from the high bone up to your, um, uh, there's these little, it's called the stylohyoid. It, little um, stylus that comes off the temporal bone looks like a uh let's see what is it the mites go up the tights go down so it's a like a stalactite hanging down from a, a cliff mm-hmm. cave wall right? Mm-hmm. right and and there's a little muscle attached to that and and then they also attach to c1 the front right side here. of c1 your first mm-hmm. cervical vertebrae but those are the muscles that keep your trachea and your esophagus from falling down into your chest Mm-hmm. you've ever wondered why your trachea doesn't fall down into your chest. Now you know why. Right. There no. you go. <laughs> <laughs> but because it's a why all those forces play off each other. Mm, the kind of and, push pull. Yeah. And so if there's excess tension in the, um, in the floor of the mouth that will then pull, can pull the neck out, for example. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. So, so getting this whole high, I call it the hyoid complex balanced can really help the oropharyngeal muscles work properly. Oh. And, um, and, and one of the things that, that affects airways is when your tongue falls back. Right, right. Right. Which is why retractive braces can be so dangerous. Yeah. Which is yeah, what I had actually. <laughs> now that I learned about all this stuff, it's like, ah. <laughs> right. Isn't this horrible? I did the yeah. same thing. I, I have no why chin. Why is this happening? Yeah. And, um, but anyway, the, uh, uh, I was lucky I didn't get my braces on until I was 15. So I probably was already had a big enough airway. I didn't suffer from that it. That was safe enough. But, yeah. um, but no, I work a lot with this whole area to help people with snoring problems. Um, with, uh, uh, but I think it's very important in this process to make sure this whole mechanism, uh, they call it the orthognathic system, mm-hmm. uh, is balanced and, and working to its proper uh, you know, as best it can. Right. And, and I think cranial work along with, um, you know, the training that they do, the, uh, can be really helpful in that okay. so that the training actually works and, and holds. Right. So it doesn't 
regress. Exactly. Would be the right word. So as far as pediatric medicine right now, where do you think we're missing the mark? Well, from my experience, my observations in the office, I, I think most pediatricians are doing a really great job. And but what I think would be helpful for these kids is if we had um, airway exam, you know, tongue and oral and airway exam be a part of the newborn exam that the delivering doctor does in the delivery room. Right. And I think people will be surprised to know it's not. It's not. It's I've not. Had, I've had some kids six months old coming in and nobody's ever looked in their mouth. <laughs> you know, like, right. Okay. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. they're listening to their heart and lungs and they're checking their mm-hmm. hip displacement. I mean, they're, but they're just not opening their mouths and really looking in there, moving their tongue, sticking their finger in there, looking Mm -hmm. around. Yeah. And, and it would just take a very short, you know, just add a minute or two to the newborn exam, Mm -hmm. but it could really change the the baby's life if they could get the proper treatment started at that age, you know? Right. Cause they could take a, a palate, for example, that was really high. They could actually adjust it while they're still malleable. Mm-hmm. Or like you said, release a tongue tie so that they could nurse properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and, and again, so we work, I work a lot with the mandible and with the temporal mandibular joints and, mm-hmm. you know, the masseter muscles, the temporalis muscles, um, people that clench their teeth in their sleep mm-hmm. is called bruxism. Um, you know, bruxism is interesting because it's happening in your sleep. Right. So you have to get into that unconscious mind to figure out why to make a difference in it. Yeah. So just getting a bite plate, then people just bite on the bite plate all night and right. it saves their teeth, but it's, messes but with it's their, still happening. Yeah. It yeah. still is compressing their whole cranial rhythm and still messing with the temporomandibular joint. So, um, so the thing I would like to see, and I know we're working with this as part of the, um, Children's Airway First Foundation is getting that to be an acceptable part of the newborn exam. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, pediatricians, neonatologists, um, pediatricians that attend births, um, even the OBs, because sometimes the OBs are the one doing the new baby exam, right. family practitioners, midwives, whoever's doing the initial new baby exam, just to have a airway check, oral, you know, the mouth and airway check be part of that physical exam could make all the difference in the world. It really could. It's fascinating. And again, you know, as a mom of two, I had no idea. I always assumed, you know, they're going off, they're doing their thing. They're going to check my kid. We're great. And having, you know, been a part of the foundation now for every year and and started to learn what goes on. It never occurred to me. No one looked in their mouth. No one checked. And then also being trained to, to notice the, like when a baby's a mouth breather. Yes. That, right. I mean, I never got trained to do that when I was in residency. But you know what? The Navajo women never got trained. And I know you've probably studied this. They know to just come up and close their mouths. So we're back to that kind of inner consciousness somewhere along the way. They figured it out. That's They important. knew. Just close them. And that's why they didn't have the issues. Interesting. Yeah. So it'd be something simple like that. And even just a, a piece, of that, piece of that white micropore paper mm-hmm. tape. Uh, mm-hmm. really is, is a great way to, to encourage to breathing. Yeah. Right. So, so, but I, I personally think a good cranial evaluation early in life can help. There was a unpublished study that was done by an osteopath um, in uh, uh, Waterford, Maine, 
that there were two hospitals that did deliveries in his town. And every morning for five years, he got up and went into one hospital and did a, just a 20 minute cranial treatment on all the babies that were born that day. Yeah. And then he didn't do them on the babies born in the other hospital as a control group. Okay. And then he, he followed those kids till they were five years old. And what he found was the kids that got the, the 20 minute cranial treatment on the first day of birth were hospitalized half as often as the other kids. Wow. For all different causes, all, whether it was yeah. respiratory syncytial virus or whatever, um, hospitalized half as often. So talk about inexpensive preventative medicine. Unbelievable. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. And he didn't get so, it. He wasn't able to publish it because he didn't like go through a Institute review board or any, you know, it wasn't a formal study or anything, mm. but wow. I met him when I was back in Maine. Pretty interesting. Wow. That is, that's incredibly interesting. So when we're talking about moms and newborns and you're talking to them specifically, um, you know, what can they do to protect their newborns and, and guide them as they're growing older? Can, could they actually ask for an airway evaluation at birth? I think that would be helpful and, or do their own. I mean, moms can tell if their babies have a tongue tie, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> might not be able to assess a high palate. <laughs> they might not know what that is, right? but, but educate, you know, moms can observe nasal or mouth breathing babies. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a little bit of uh, prenatal, that education could happen in a prenatal class, mm. you know, this right. is what you watch for in your newborn. If they're a mouth breather, just right. show a few slides or something, you know, mm-hmm. um, that wouldn't be that hard to include that in the curriculum for, for prenatal classes, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, parents and, and I think a little bit prejudiced, but especially moms just really have this knowing about their kids. Mm-hmm. This in, it's almost intuitive kind of knowing and, and to trust that. Yeah. And if you think something's off, then be like a dog on a bone and don't give up to get an answer that you trust. And I, and you know, it's, it's just, you're being a patient advocate for your child. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and I spoke with another guest on a previous podcast and that's the only way that she got help and finally got somebody to really dig into her issues. She was a patient advocate. She was relentless. And I think Mm -hmm. it's not a knock on the doctor's. If you can't well, see it, you know, right up front. Right. And, and the system is really hard. It doesn't really support doctors no, doing their job well. And that's right. They don't have story. the time to really dig in and look and do these. But the medical dives. system is so complicated now that anybody who interfaces with the medical system needs an advocate. And my own opinion is that's one of the jobs of the primary care practitioner is to advocate for their patient to the rest of the medical system. Okay. You know, the hospitals. Meaning the insurance companies, hospitals, everybody, or? Well, I personally don't like dealing with insurance companies, but as far as. <laughs> I don't others, think anybody does. You know, <laughs> but specialists and, mm-hmm. you know, like if somebody needs to be hospitalized, they, they need an advocate to make sure that, that everything's going correctly and stuff. Um, that's just my opinion. And, and it's just because the system has gotten so complicated and everybody's overworked, especially mm-hmm. now after the pandemic, oh, absolutely. real labor shortage. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, just, and, 
the parents often have to start out being the advocate for their babies and hopefully their their pediatrician or family practitioner can help them with that if if the child needs specialty care okay so that's my Okay, yeah. And then, um, you know, the, the last question I'll have for you, uh, and again, I, I recommend your book to pretty much any, anyone, um, <laughs> uh, seriously, um, but uh, this is actually my second copy, which you know of this book, because I found so much value in it. I gave it to my adult daughter who suffers from anxiety and for other other moms out there and dads, but like you said, it's it tends to be the moms. Um, what other advice can you give them as far as you know dealing with children with airway issues and anxiety and depression? Well, <clears throat> yeah, that was a really good question. I've been thinking about that, and and I think this gets a little metaphysical, but. I think it's important to know that, you know, that, that deep inner wisdom that we all have mm-hmm. is because at one point I asked myself, well, what are the characteristics of this deep inner wisdom that everybody seems to have? And it didn't seem to matter what their religious upbringing was, what their economic standing was, what culture they were raised in. Everybody I worked with had this deep inner knowing mm-hmm. and it had these kind of universal characteristics. Um, and, and a lot of traditions would call it your immortal soul or, you know, your, your, like I said, there's lots of different names for it around the world, mm-hmm. but just know that your newborn baby has that. And it's just as ageless in that newborn baby as it will be when they're an adult in a, mm-hmm. in a grown-up body. Right. So, so just, so treat them like that, treat them as they're, there's incredibly wise and, and deep, human beings because we all have that mm-hmm. and and what's interesting is humans we we tend to respond we, we try to meet the expectations that are placed on us and i don't know if that's because we were mm-hmm. i don't know if that's because we evolved as in tribal situations for hundreds of thousands of years but but just like like as so what i mean as an example um there's a saying in parenting that labeling is disabling mm-hmm so if a kid gets a label of ADD yeah. on, in their school record, at the beginning of the year, the teacher's reading through their students' school records and they see ADD, how are they going to treat that child? Right. 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 And that child's going to try to meet the expectation of ADD. Uh-huh. Right. And you see that a lot. And like, we all go through the phase of stranger anxiety when we're when we're toddlers probably. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and so if parents keep saying, Oh, they're just really shy, you know, as you're going behind their leg or whatever, when you meet a stranger, no, but I've seen six there. year olds, six year olds that kept doing that. Mm-hmm. And, and I would talk to the mom said, well, just don't say that in front of them. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but also it's, it's like, what image do you hold of your child in your mind? Okay. Because they're going to try to meet that expectation. Because mm-hmm. it's the unspoken expectations that are the most powerful. Yeah. And so, and I, I practice this with my patients. I, I hold this expectation in my mind that, that they're competent to find their healing and, and to live happy, productive lives. But then I kind of leave it open to what that, what that means to them. Mm-hmm. 
So I think as a parent, you should do the same thing with your child is see, hold them in your mind as being perfectly competent to grow up and, and live a happy, productive life, whatever that means to them. Whatever that is to them. Mm-hmm. To them, yeah. And that your job is to help them discover their gifts and, and, and you know, in, in expand on their gifts and bring those gifts to the world. And, but I think that expectation or that, you know, that image you hold of your child in your mind, even if you never say a word about it, is really important. And it's powerful. Yeah. It's and, absolutely powerful. And, and that's actually a part of like, for example, Waldorf teacher training. Mm-hmm. Um, they try to teach the Waldorf teachers to hold a certain kind of expectation for each child in their class. And, and every morning the teacher's supposed to think about each child before the day starts, you know, hmm. in that way. And um, you never have to say a word and they will do their darndest to meet those expectations. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, on that note, I would like to thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today and to being, you know, at, at being a part of our foundation and bringing your wisdom to what we're trying to do to help all these kids. I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing. And this is going to help a lot of children once this really gets up and going. It's a great I vision. hope so. I absolutely hope so. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks so much to today's guest, Dr. Stephen Hall, for sharing his medical insight and to each of you for listening to our episode. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to leave us a review or comment about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And if you'd like to be a guest on an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the Contact Us page on our website, or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. Remember, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric, dentist, or pediatrician. And as always, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working so hard to help make the lives of kids around the globe a little bit better. Take care, everyone. Stay safe and happy breathing.